Blog Talk Radio. Man, it was real cool in school if we got good grades Like straight up A's, our parents would take us to a 76 game I got my game and there ain't no shame Big shots of Mo Cheeks and Moses Malone Julius Server called Phileas home Bobby Jones, Daryl Dawkins, and Tony Sinkin' Freeze Rocky Bobo will come from South Philly But if you wanna make it on time to the show There's only one road that you really have to know So get to Fishtown without all that job I suggest that you drive on I-95 Wanna get downtown but feel in the fix Get on that road they call 676, the most expensive, expensive piece of interstate. They ever made a better same famous, but they got the game. Getting on 76ers, Charo Bali, this Larry Bird. Get it on 76ers, Charo Bali, this Larry Bird. Shoots the middleman out, disguises the jewel. Hello and welcome to another edition of the State of Independence podcast. I'm your host, Jeff McMenamin, a Metro Philly, alongside ESPN True Hoop writer Michael Kasky Blomain. And, you know, as always, you can add our podcast on the app Stitcher and make sure to follow us on Twitter at 76ers Report. And we have a very, very, very special guest in uh, the studio today with us. Um, a guy who knows Sixers basketball as well as anyone I know, uh, Andy Jasner. And uh, Andy is the Sixers beat writer at the Philadelphia Metro, uh, my, my colleague there. And, you know, I, I'm just honored to, to serve as an occasional fill-in for you uh, from time to time. Uh, how are you today, and are you ready to talk some Sixers? What an intro. Yeah, I should just hire you full-time. <laughs> you come here and talk about me full-time. <laughs> I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. And, you know, as we all know, uh, it, it's an exciting time um, for everything surrounding the Sixers program. Um, you know, the, the draft upcoming, the free agency upcoming, and obviously uh, for basketball fans out there, this has just been an incredible um, NBA final so far. So, you know, a lot to talk about on the show today. Um, you know, the, the draft talks are growing, and it seems like D'Angelo Russell – is still the guy pegged for the Sixers at, at number three. And, you know, it seems like uh, the evaluation of picks number four through eight, um, you know, are constantly changing here. Uh, you don't really know who's going to come after the Sixers. Uh, and, you know, there, there's rumors of Russell to the Timberwolves, Russell to the Lakers. So even above us here, uh, you don't really know what's going on there. Um but in terms of, you know, the, the guys directly after the Sixers, it, it seems like Justice Winslow, Emmanuel Moutier, uh, Mario Hazonia, and Willie Cauley-Stein, uh, in some order, those seem to be the guys, you know, going after them here. Is there any guy out of that group, uh, Andy, uh, I'll start with, that might have, uh, you know, caught your eye more um, over the course of the past month or so? Well, I would say – the most fascinating name has to be Moutier, only because no one's really seen him. He play, I mean, he played 10 games. He hurt. He got hurt his ankle, and he's kind of just been, like, off the charts almost. But, you know, you hear Larry Brown talk about him, and, and he gushes about him. I mean, and, and the Sixers are going to mm-hmm. meet with him, and they're going to do their due diligence. But I think of all the players you mentioned, I mean, the European players, obviously, you know, very few people, with the exception of, 
you know the teams who are seeing him constantly with the scouts over there. This kid Moutier, it's got to be worth looking at. From the people I've spoken to, uh, they say he has tremendous upside. You know, you know, Russell is maybe a little more polished, a little more smooth right now, but there are just certain players who have that, you know, that that special something, and, and it's they really should do their homework because if they're sitting there and, and they have him on the board. Uh, you don't want to reflect back years later and say, oh, gee, why do we pass on Paul Pierce to take Larry Hughes? I say of all the guys you mentioned, <laughs> that's the one player I'd really do my homework on. Yeah, and you can go back a little further with uh, Dirk Nowitzki as well. Uh, sure, <laughs> yeah, sure. there There's some guys that, uh, you know, uh, the Sixers have passed over over the years where it's kind of mind-boggling. You know, you go back to DeMarcus Cousins, um, you know, uh, passing him up for Evan Turner. Uh, the list goes on and on. But, um, yeah, there, there's some a lot of intriguing kind of more unknown players that are projected to go, you know, directly after the Sixers. Obviously, I, I think Emmanuel Moutier is that guy as well. Uh, Chad Ford released footage of, you know, Moutier from a workout on Friday. And, and man, I, I can't help but be impressed, uh, you know, physically – he looks even stronger, and, you know, his shot mechanics look to have improved uh, greatly there as well. Uh, obviously, you can't take, you know, too much from these unguarded shooting sessions, but, right. you know, I think the, the race might just be a little closer than most think, and, you know, he works out with the Sixers coming up here on June 16th. Uh, and, you know, Mike, where do you see him developing into as maybe a comparison in the NBA? Yeah, I mean, like you guys touched on, he's he's absolutely an intriguing prospect, and I think the fact that you know he was seen not not as often or as frequently as a lot of the guys that are playing here um, in the NCAA makes him, you know, that much more intru- intriguing as a possibility. You know, I've seen a lot of comparisons to him uh, as far as John Wall, uh, uh, some similarities like that. You know, he doesn't <clears throat> to this point have the most reliable shot, but it's you know it's something he's been working on. But as far as the speed and the explosiveness and the athleticism, you know, that's all there already um, at, at, you know, this early stage of his career. It's, you know, so that just that um, in itself makes him a guy that, you know, like Andy touched on, he, he could be a guy that you really don't want to miss out on. And, you know, if, if D'Angelo Russell ends up being off the board at three, you know, like you mentioned, Jeff, there was reports that the Lakers were interested in him and there was one out of Minnesota that the T-Wolves might take a look at him. You know, if Russell was gone, Moutier might be a guy that, you know, he, he might be a little step down in fans' minds because, you know, they, they're kind of geared toward Russell at this point. A lot of them, you know, really see him as a good fit for the team. But Moutier might be a guy that, you know, could really be maybe not even a step down, a very similar type player that would fill a similar role for the team and could be, you know, an explosive and become a star in his own right down the road. Yeah, and I'll tell you, you you know, from seeing that footage of him in China to, you know, seeing this recent footage that Ford put out there, he just looks physically like a monster at his position. You know, if he could really develop into that role, you're looking at a guy with the size of Russell Westbrook, um, you know, obviously not, not the same scoring ability at this point in his career, but, you know, down the road, down the road that's something to, to definitely look out for. And you don't want to pass on a guy like that. Um, so it'll be a very interesting decision for Sam Hinkie. Uh, you know, he'll have the, the best evaluation possible, I guess, coming up here uh, with his workout um, on June 16th. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, not too many people have have really discussed the the second rounders here. Um, you know, possibly coming over to the Sixers, these these five second round picks. Uh, you know, Mike, uh, have you been able to look through some of the names uh, the Sixers might look out for there? And you know, do you think? anyone might be able to drop to the Sixers in the second round, such as, you know, KJ did last season? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the prospect of having four or five second-round picks again is definitely, uh, you know, that's definitely a plus, considering that at this point there's only one first-round pick. And, uh, you know, you got to give Sam credit so far for what he's done with, you know, with the second-round picks in Philly. Uh, you know, uh, Jeremy Grant looks like he could be, a, you know, a developing or a solid contributing player. KJ, um, you know, his future is uncertain at this point, but he certainly showed that he could be, a, hmm. you know, a contributor at the NBA level. Uh, Jordan McRae, who will be, uh, you know, coming over and joining the Sixers in Summer League this year. They've all, you know, all potential to add to the team. And with that being said, um, you know, there's definitely a lot of intriguing names that, you know, you see on draft boards, lower first round, early second round, that might, um, you know, might work out well for the team. Uh, Hollis Jefferson was one guy out of Arizona. I mean, I doubt he would drop to the second round. He's a guy that's projected like mid-20s um, in a lot of mock drafts I've been looking at. I, I like what I've seen out of him as far as a fit for the Sixers. Um there's, I'm trying to think, you know, there's there's a couple other guys I'd like to see um, from perimeter guys that them take a look at. Maybe, um, like, you know, Aaron White from Iowa was a guy that I, I know that I've seen a little bit looked all right. But, uh, you know, it's the prospect of the fact that they have, you know, four shots or so in the second round to take on guys that might pan out is, a, you know, it's a testament to what Sam's been able to do. Andy, uh, you know, one guy that I noticed, you know, he, he measured out very well in the combine, uh, seven feet tall, 258 pounds. You probably already know the name before I say, you know, seven foot five wingspan. Um, have you gotten to take a look at Robert Upshaw? And, you know, if so, what have you thought about just his measurements as a player? And, you know, there was a uh, talks about him possibly having some heart complications, so they don't really know his status right now. Right now he's on Draft Express as a, the 25th pick in the first round. But, you know, he could easily drop, you know, 10 spots to the Sixers there at 35. Uh, what have you seen from, you know, Upshaw? Have you have you gotten to see anything from him? Well, I mean, obviously there's there's some, some raw talent there, you know, and ability. And, you know, this could be, you know, a kid who uh, – Maybe dips down into the into the early second round. I mean, that's a kind of player that would definitely be worth the second round pick. Uh, you know, you're, you're looking for you're projecting out out deep, and, and if you're going to go a big man, and I've had this talk with other people, say that first round gets kind of crazy, and for whatever reason, Moutier goes second, that leaves Okafor open. You know, I've had heard people say, "Well, do you take the big man?" I'm like, "Yeah, you go take the best possible player." You know, the, having having players of that ability with that size and skill, I've heard nothing but but upside. But clearly, if you're going to get picked late first or early second, there's also there's also skills that have to be uh, improved upon and and the defensive aspects of the game. But you know, boy, if, if a player like that is there, if I'm in the second round, that that's a perfect second round pick. I don't know about about first round, but I don't think they're going to have that concern. But if he's there. I think yeah, you got to maybe step up and go for it. 
Yeah, I mean, from what I've heard, uh, just, you know, uh, his interviews at uh, the the combine and his measurements, just a super impressive athlete that might have, you know, gotten into some trouble in college here at Washington. And, um, you know, it, the talent level is there. You know, the, if the Sixers really need a rebounding big, which it seems like they do, you know, the status is unclear on, on Mute coming back and um, Thomas Robinson. So, you know, if they want to add a big that can strictly come in, get, get you some rebounds, get you some blocks, uh, you know, he's definitely a player with that intrigue. And, you know, the Sixers aren't trying to win right away. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll still be probably, you know, hovering around the 40 wins range. I don't even know if I would go that high next season. So, you know, there's nothing to lose, I guess, with, you know, wasting, maybe not even wasting, but using one of those five second round picks on a guy like that, that that's so unknown. Um, yeah. He had problems at both colleges he was at. Then he gets, you know, uh, dealing with cardiologists with a heart issue. It just, there seems to be a little bit of baggage here. So that, that would concern me a little bit. Yeah. And that's where, you know, you say, if you really want to look for the other team needs, uh, I guess you're you're looking at wing scoring. Um, that's something they definitely need to address in the second round as well. Um, is there any guy that, that maybe you got to see, um, you know, that's currently projected in the second round that, that could add some scoring to the wing position? Wow. I mean <laughs> – there are so many players, and when you factor in the European players, and that's always been a wild card, you know, the Sixers have not been, you know, they have not been that great through the years in terms of projecting out. Maybe Sarge will be different. You know, I, uh, I agree with what we were talking about before, and, you know, he's a local kid. Hollis Jefferson has some really good potential. Now, shooting ability is not one of his strengths, you know, but, but that could be taught, but he's gifted. He's he can get to the rim. He plays good defense. I mean, a kid like that to me would be would be a strong second round pick with with that many skills and ability. I mean, KJ McDaniel's wasn't the greatest shooter either, but he started to improve in mm-hmm. the little time he was here. I like Hollis Jefferson a lot. Yeah, he he's definitely someone that I think all of us are on board with. But, you know, if, if he drops, um, I might even try to package some picks to try to get back into the first round and you know, scoop him up in one of those late 20s picks there. Um, but, yeah, he, he's definitely a guy. And being from Chester, you know, we might be a little biased there in our uh, evaluation of him. But uh, he is a very talented player, um, already projected to be one of the, the best defenders coming out of this draft. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, there's a lot of talent that, that could be there in that second round. Uh, a guy like Michael Qualls, um, I, you know, looked at as – a potential pick there, Seti Osman, uh, another great shooter. Tyler Harvey actually, you know, led the nation in scoring last season. And, you know, he's projected to be the last pick to the Sixers in the draft. So, um, you know, a lot of good options in terms of, you know, both outside shooting and scoring, whether or not they actually pan out to be anything um, is is another issue. But, uh, you know, once again, this is a State of Independence podcast. I'm your host, Jeff McBenamin, alongside Michael Kapsky Blomain and Andy Jasner. And for those who didn't already know, um, Andy is the son of, you know, the late Phil Jasner, 
without a doubt, the greatest Sixers beat writer of all time um, in his time at the Philadelphia Daily News. Um, I'm sure you, you know, lived through a lot of special moments with your dad over the years. And, you know, as far as the Sixers are concerned, what sticks out in your mind? Oh, my gosh. You got about five hours? (laughs) So many. I mean, obviously, most recent, I would say, obviously, that everybody remembers 2001. You know, because for a team that didn't win a title, that's going to be talked about forever. Just for how exciting and and uh, dynamic they were with, with with Allen Iverson. But going back into the '80s, I mean that that run from 1977 to to '83 uh, was just it was just incredible. And it's and it's a shame that they only came back with one championship out of it because they easily could have had four or five with as much talent as they had year after year. Uh, but the, that 83 team was just, you just knew it. You just felt it. I was i was 14 that year. I went to pretty much every game. And, and you could just see it. They walked into the gym, and they just believed they were going to win, that nothing, regular season, playoffs, nothing. And it's just the most amazing thing was how well that they meshed together. Because if you go one season further in 84 and you bring in Barkley and and you lose in the first round of the Nets. I mean, not, nothing is guaranteed. That that's just from year to year in this, in this league is just a, it's just the difference is is just remarkable when you have a chance to see that you do. But that '83 team, I would stack up against any team in history for what they had, for the players that they were on and off the court. It was just a really as, as much fun as 2001 was. '83 is just going to live on forever. Yeah, um, unfortunately, Mike and I were in the infant stages, uh, not even back then. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it it was uh, definitely something we would have liked to see, um, you know, but it, it was a great thing to see, you know, that, that Iverson press conference a couple of years ago. Uh, me, you, and Mike were all in attendance there, and, um, you know, Iverson was obviously – very saddened by your dad not being able to be there and had previously called him, you know, the greatest writer to ever cover a game. Um, What kind of things did your dad say about, you know, their relationship? Well, and and it, and it grew through the years. And that's the funny thing, just like Alan with Larry Brown, you know, Phil Jasner with Alan Iverson, like, I mean, because when you're around somebody more than you are your own family, because you're on the road, you're on, you know, in hotels, you're at the arena. He, I mean, he, they saw each other every day for hours. And they would have their spats, and they would have – Alan would be like, I don't understand why you wrote that. And Phil would be like, mm-hmm. well, that's my job. And it, But it would go on and on and on like that. You know, you have to remember when Iverson came out of Georgetown, I mean, he was – I mean, he was, he was a kid who – it took him many, many years, and even toward the end, I mean, with the Pistons and the Grizzlies, I mean, he, you know, for everything great about Allen Iverson, he pretty much quit on two teams at the end of his career. You know, you, you feel bad saying that, but that's pretty much what happened. You know, he just mm-hmm. needed a maturing process. It took him a long time to understand, you know, there there were just so, there's so many little nuances about being a professional athlete, and when your every move is critiqued, I mean, Understanding that is is difficult. I mean, I I don't think any of us can fully understand that. The famous press conference, the practice press conference. I mean, mm. that day he came in. I mean, he just lost his best friend. 
The Celtics hammered the Sixers. You know, they got knocked out of the playoffs. He was already in a bad mood. You know, and then everything came off, and he and Phil got into into a personal spat that day. But they laughed about that later. I mean, you know, Alan Alan matured, crazy as that sounds. He did. He did mature and and really showed me a lot by the end to, to take the time, you know, not just at that press conference, but when he was honored at the game, you know, in front of 20,000 people, to call, you know, a sports writer out. It's, it, it, it's special. I mean, it, it really was a really cool thing. And that it was a complicated relationship, just like Larry and Alan would be like, Larry was the best coach I ever had. There were days that Alan made Larry so mad that he, like, he, he just couldn't take it. I mean, but that's what a family hmm. does. I mean, it was no different with a sports writer and, and a star athlete. You know, Charles Barkley got into arguments with my dad all the time. Phil, I don't understand why you wrote that. It makes, but they would disagree. But then they would talk it out. Boom, and you move on to the next thing. But it was, uh, you know, Allen Iverson was and always will be one of the most fascinating, most dynamic players that you'll ever see. I mean, the, the, the guy for you know for those that, who have negative things to say, you cannot take away from what he was, and that's ultimately one of the greatest players ever. And also, one of the most uh, exciting just in, in terms of passion, what he had to say. You know, he, he really he had strong beliefs. He stuck with them. He, I mean, you knew what he felt, and there was no getting around it, and I think that's to be admired. I mean, it's, it's something that, that I hope that the city embraced and, you know, and will look back on fondly forever. And, you know, with, with AI turning 40, uh, there's been a sudden upswing in the media attention surrounding him. Uh, Chris sure. Palmer, Bleacher Report, had you know a great story on his legacy. Showtime had a documentary on on him, um, and there is also a book uh, published by Kent Babb called No Answer: mm-hmm. The Incredible Rise and Unthinkable Fall of Allen Iverson, which kind of paints him in a much different light, uh, and one that you know there, there's a lot of critics out there that could definitely you know believe and um you know maybe knock him down a little bit uh mike did you get to you know see any of this read any of this and what was your you know thought about you know iverson turning 40 uh i didn't get a chance to read that book yet it's it's, you know it's it's something i'm absolutely going to read i'm a little bit ambivalent just because you know jeff as you know when we've gone back i've had a special affinity for iverson um you know throughout his career since he joined the Sixers. You know, has been my personally my favorite athlete, so it's tough for me to read some of the reports that come out that, you know, paint him in a less than favorable light. Um, but at the same time, you know, you have to view both sides of the coin. Um, I did read Chris Palmer's uh, Bleacher Report article, which came out, which, uh, you know, I thought he had a lot of insight in there. Um, I, I personally like, really like the anecdote about, um, you know, where Iverson was talking about uh, how he wanted to become, a, you know, go become a professional fisherman and, uh, you know, he talked about his <laughs> his love of fishing and it kind of at least that part to me came off as a guy that was content, um, you know, with where he was at in his life and his career as he's, um, you know, turning 40, as you guys mentioned, you know, the, with the way his career ended, there was a lot of controversy around it. He didn't necessarily go out, um, you know, on his own terms or go out in a way that might be befitting of a, you know, a player of his caliber, a guy that's going to be a, you know, first ballot hall of famer, you know, franchise cornerstone, you, you know, fans of his and probably he himself might have, you know, would have liked to see the tail end of his career go a little bit more smoothly and go differently. 
But, um, you know, I think as, um, you know, Andy touched on he when he was speaking about his relationship with Phil that, you know, uh, Alan kind of has matured and grown over the years. And I think that's, um, you know, it's evident in things like that relationship. And I think it's just evident um, in his personal life now where he's kind of just embracing the fact that, you know, he's a family guy now. He's doing, you know, getting into other endeavors. He has a, uh, you know, he did a partnership with Stan Socks coming out, which is like the new um, the NBA sock company. So, um, he's staying busy. You know, it just it's it seems like he's kind of at peace with where he's at, which, uh, you know, that's all you could really want for a guy that you, you know, rooted for so hard for so many years and, you know, really laid it out all on the line for the city. Yeah, and in the Showtime documentary, they talk about you know that that practice ran. Uh, you were you were there live, Andy, and um, in you know the book that recently came out by uh, Kent Babb, he talks about how you know Iverson was drunk showing up to the press conference, and you know he he heard it from his sources uh, at least. Um, you know you were there live, and you know. A, do you have more of a personal opinion on that matter? Well, I, I can't speak to that. I, I do know that they, on a couple of occasions, really tried to shut that press conference down. You know, and Allen was just was just adamant. And the thing that that's interesting about that is really the whole press conference, aside from Allen's personal issues leading up to it, was that Larry Brown had talked about his practice habits. I mean, he brought that up to the press. The press didn't create that. He brought it up and said he wished he had done this a little bit more. I don't think he was criticizing him as much as he just really just wanted him to take. They had just lost in the first round. So what he, what he was saying was maybe if we improve on this, maybe that will help us next year. But, you know, Allen got into a, into a state of mind that he just couldn't break free of. One thing led to another, and then, you know, obviously this, this, the, the rant will live on forever now. But, I mean, there there were so many little things that went, you know, in and out of that press conference that, you know, just people won't remember that. They'll just remember the famous practice line. But it was just something mm-hmm. that probably put, should – yes, it was good talk show fodder. Yes, it was good newspaper fodder. It, as was mentioned in the Showtime special, it wasn't good for Allen. It just mm-hmm. didn't – it didn't paint him in a good way. But, on the other hand, he spoke from the heart – like he's done his whole life, he was in, he's emotional. He could be aggressive at times, but that's if you want a snapshot of who he was, that was who he was. Like he was upset and devastated by the loss of his friend. They, I mean, they, they they didn't just get beat; they got beat bad by Boston. I mean, it was a really tough loss to stomach. He didn't like to lose. Then there were trade rumors. I mean, it's so many things were involved there, and. and for those around the country, obviously they're just going to make fun of it forever. But I will—I don't want to use the word defend Allen, but there there were other factors that went into that. Of course, and you know, thinking about that Boston series makes me sick to the stomach. Antoine Walker, you know, slapping his arms, <laughs> going back down yeah. the court in that one. Uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, whether positive or negative. Um, I, for one, have loved, you know, flashing back to these great moments as a Sixers fan. And, you know, is there any moment that that might stick out to you the most, Andy, from, you know, your years covering AI? Wow. I I think that there were several. And obviously, number one, 
I mean, I was out in L.A. I mean, the, the step over uh, of Tyron Lu was just, I mean, and, and he didn't do it with any malice. He didn't do it. It wasn't orchestrated. It just happened in the flow of the moment. And that was just, it was just, it was just, a, you know, again, a snapshot that you'll remember forever. Um, I would say the 60-point game he had against Orlando uh, at the Wells Fargo Center, you know, you, you come into the building, you never know what you're going to see, and boom, he drops 60. Uh, there were so many, though, because on on any given night, and as, and as Alan matured, you know, from like 2000, 2001, and, and two on, you know, like against Toronto in the playoffs, Milwaukee in the playoffs, I mean, he just basically put the entire franchise on his back and, and just said, follow me. And they kind of did. And if they don't get banged up in 01, you know, if Lynch is healthy, if McKee's healthy, if they have maybe one more player, you know, as great as that Lakers team was, you know, maybe they find a way to pull that out. But that that Teron Lou moment was 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 truly amazing. I think that 60 point night is right up there. And and pretty much the I, gosh, I mean, maybe not the the whole playoffs in 01, but just the whole the whole season. I mean, they started 10 and 0, and you felt something special happening. And, you know, then they get Matumbo, and it could have gone one of two ways, and it obviously went went the way that worked to, to get them all the way through to the finals. But that finals appearance, when, when the spotlight is on, when the lights are shining the brightest, in L.A. against Shaq and Kobe, and I think that Allen played some of the very best basketball of his entire life uh, against them, and, you know, that's something I'll never forget. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned that as, you know, probably the top moment that that game won. And, you know, that step over of, of Tyrone Liu was celebrated uh, on Saturday, you know, the 14th anniversary of that. Um, one of the things that I feel like isn't said enough about that series, though, was, you know, previously to that, you know, step over of Iverson on, on Tyrone Liu, uh, Liu had, you know, really been – playing great defense on Iverson and you know I I compared it on Twitter this morning to Della Vadova's uh, on Curry um, last night in game two Mike do you remember that performance by Tyrone Liu just kind of sticking sticking Iverson in that series and do you think it's kind of funny that um, for all the defensive effort he gave in that in that series that he's remembered um, you know for being stepped over Oh yeah, I remember specifically. Uh, you know, there were the media members back then during those finals were referring to Tyron Lue as the uh, the Iverson stopper. Um, you know, just like people after Game One of these finals were referring to Iguodala as the LeBron stopper. Um, you know, I don't remember the exact stats after that first 48 point game, but you know, he Iverson put up numbers every single every night every game of those finals. You know, all five all the way through. Um, it was kind of ironic that he was called the Iverson stopper. I, I don't really know how much he, you know, actually stopped him. He played his heart out. You know, you can't take that away from him. But ultimately, Tyron Lue became a household name for one reason and one reason alone, and that's, you know, that iconic moment that you guys were both just referring to. And, uh, you know, as a Sixers fan born in 1987, you know, a couple of years too late to see the championship, that, that game one victory, you know, that is – I think for this whole generation, that is, you know, that is the Sixers championship. That was basically the highest moment, you know, that we've had as a fan base in the Sixers franchise for, you know, as long as I've been alive. Um, and I think that was honestly the last time that there was a real belief amongst the fan base, like a true belief that the season could end in the championship. 
Um, you know, I don't think even the the year a couple of years back when they took the Celtics to seven in the Eastern semis with you know the uh, the Doug Collins, uh, Drew Holiday, Iguodala team, you know they were a nice underdog story and they were they were playing well and the city was getting behind them. But you know there there wasn't I don't think that unifying belief like you know hey this team really could go all the way. Um, you know, and that's that's something that's obviously severely missed, and I think that's one of the reasons that people have been so patient and uh, supportive of Sam Hinkie's current plan because, you know, I think they see that he, you know, is trying to get us back to that point where we could truly, you know, the team could truly be considered a, a championship contender. And, you know, Andy, I mentioned that that Lou moment and just kind of the defense he he played on Iverson during that series. Um, for for Delavadova to to have the performance like he did, um, you know, on the the other league MVP Steph Curry years later with uh, Tyron Lue now an assistant coach on the Cavs, um, you know, it, isn't just the, this comparison um, just just pretty funny to see. I mean, Delavadova was absolutely tremendous in Game Two. I mean, he gave everything he had. He, not just defensively, he made a couple of tough shots. He got that huge rebound at the end that basically gave, you know, I don't want to say gave them, but but propelled them to, to the win. If he doesn't sneak in there and get that offensive rebound, they may not win that game. I mean, he, he just gave every, everything he had. The former rugby player is just, I mean, he is a perfect complement right now for what that team needs, losing you know, Love and Irving, I mean, they need him to, to, to be that lockdown defender. Now, I don't think you're going to shut Steph Curry down the whole series, but you just try to make things difficult, frustrate him a little bit. And, and if Della Vadova's defense, if he continues like this and is able to keep that pace up, I, I wouldn't count Cleveland out. I mean, I didn't think that they were going to be able to win this series. I didn't think they were going to be able to win a game. But after what watching – you know what the role players did and how they stepped up. I mean, they, they may they may be good enough to win this thing, but you're right. That comparison. I mean, I think it's it's very it's very similar. Delvadova starts. He gets you know in your shirt. He doesn't leave you alone. He'll frustrate you. He'll dive. He'll get that rebound. He'll do whatever he has to do to help his team win. He's a perfect perfect player for that team right now. Yeah, Robert Ory. Uh, you know, compared this season's Cavs to that 2001 Sixers team, ironically. Um, can you see that that comparison? Mm, maybe a little bit, but, I mean, Iverson didn't have two all-stars with him. I mean, Aaron McKee was very good, very good player, but, I mean, he didn't have Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love. I mean, he had Aaron McKee and then George Lynch, and then, you know, obviously, I don't know if you, if you refer to Matumbo as an all-star. I didn't see the all-stars. I, I think that basically what Iverson did that year putting the team on his back was just was just incredible I, I don't fully agree with that comparison I think this Cleveland team has a lot more right now they have a little bit more depth uh, than that Sixers team did but I mean that Sixers I mean one thing that both of those teams had is heart heart and even more heart because when you get to this level I mean you could see LeBron walking up to the podium post game. He looked absolutely exhausted last night. He didn't leave anything out there. And if Cleveland is to come back and somehow win this series and bring that city a championship with the injuries they've have and 
the reserves that they have, I think that it's going to go down as one of the greatest feats truly ever in, in the NBA. Yeah, I, I personally personally think this is one of the greatest series of, you know, of, of all time uh, so far. You know, two straight games going into overtime, just two great teams out on the court, both offensively and defensively. Uh, Mike, you know, what have you thought about the finals so far? And do you think the Cavs might be, you know, a better team than people were making them out to be, uh, you know, before the, the series started? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just as a pure basketball fan, you really couldn't ask for much more out of the first two, um, you know, the first two games of the finals. As you said, both of them going into overtime. They mentioned on the uh, on the broadcast last night that this it was the first time in the uh, finals history that the first two games in the series both went to overtime. You know, which is pretty impressive considering. And uh, you know, as as both you guys said, it's just been it's not only that, it's just been excellent basketball. Like the teams have both you can you know, it's it's championship basketball. It's it is what it is, that's what they're playing for. Both no one's leaving anything out on the court, you know, the superstars, everyone, the role players are stepping up, they're all giving it their all and it's you know, it's just great to watch. It's been especially interesting kind of the contract um contrasting styles that the two teams play. You know, especially now in the finals with Kyrie out, the Cavs have been so LeBron-centric, you know, with their their offense is either going through LeBron, uh, you know, in, in the post or out at the top of the key where he basically does, you know, breaks down the D or backs it in and looks to kick it out compared to, you know, the Warriors-style play, which they've used all year, which has been obviously, you know, getting out on the break, spreading the ball around and shooting threes. Um, it's been interesting to watch how, you know, I think the Cavs have, overall kind of controlled the pace they've slowed it a little bit um been able to keep it a series but um you know as you guys touched on i would have to agree if you know obviously this is a huge if after two games but if if the cavaliers were able to pull off you know this this uh series win it would be uh you know absolutely incredible especially considering you know the fact that the second and third banana of the team heading into the season are, are both out and uh you know, it's provided a great opportunity for some of the other guys, like uh, Delvadova, like you touched on. Tristan Thompson has been excellent for them. Um, you know, Mozgov yesterday was huge, you know, just on dive to the basket and high screen and rolls. They, you know, the, the Warriors just couldn't stop him for a while. He went to the line, uh, you know, time and time again. And he's just been a huge factor. Um, like, he was a big pickup for that team. You know, he's been a catalyst for them to get to the finals in a – you know, to go back to that comparison, I guess his acquisition is kind of similar to the one uh, the Sixers acquisition of Matumbo midseason one whereas you know they had a glaring need for a big guy to push through to the you know throughout the playoffs and they made a move to get one. So that, um, but yeah, I mean it's it's been an excellent series and I'm you know I'm sure like you guys I can't wait for Game Three tomorrow. I think Cleveland was 19 and 20 at one point in the regular season. If you think back to that, that is amazing <laughs> to figure where they came from to where they are now. Yeah, it, it took uh, a little help from Phil Jackson, but you know, <laughs> they ended up getting where where they wanted to be. You know, J.R. Smith, Timothy Mozgov, he, even though you know that wasn't directly from Phil, but you know he he used to be a Nick, and uh, you know Iman Shumpert as well. So um, you know it, it's just been an incredible year for them, um, such a turnaround, especially considering you know uh, how LeBron sat out um, for that almost like two weeks and, um, you know, Dion Waiters got, got traded. Um, with, that was actually against the Sixers, uh, when, when he was traded there. 
Um, just just a lot going on. You know, David Blatt was almost under fire the whole season here. And um, for them to, you know, be three wins away from another one for LeBron, but first one ever for their organization, um, you know, it's just pretty incredible. And, Andy, you know, what would this mean for LeBron's legacy now? You know, if he finds a way to finally get it done for the city of Cleveland and uh, bring one home here. Well, I've always been as pro LeBron as as you can be. I think his talent is just absolutely off the charts, tremendous from what he's able to do. You know, the people look back and said, "Oh, Dallas got him." You know, but you know, back he turned around. He won two titles in Miami. Yes, he had talent there, but the, you're talking about a six foot eight, like two hundred and fifty pound forward who can get to the basket. He can do anything he wants. He he he's a point guard in 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 a almost like a power forward's body and he's just he he's got all the tools. He's done it on the biggest stage. If they win this year, obviously everything is cemented. Even if they don't, even if however Golden State because Golden State is I think we haven't really had a chance to talk much about them. This is a tremendous, tremendous basketball team, top to bottom, and would be certainly worthy of a championship themselves. If LeBron loses, I think by the time he's done in Cleveland, he will have gotten them at least one title. I mean, he is, he'll be a Hall of Famer in every way. I'm not much into comparisons. I don't, I don't like getting into the Jordan comparison. Uh, I just I think you take LeBron – for what he is and what he is is truly one of the greatest players in the history of the game already. I mean, and again, like Kobe, people take for granted. I mean, this is a kid that came right out of high school. Very, very, very few have been able to step out of the high school gym into the NBA and and become this effective and just become this great. It just there, there, you can count them on one hand. There just aren't very many. So, if you're asking me about LeBron, I'm pro LeBron all the time, win or lose this year, because I think by the time he's done, he will have his cemented his place in history in, in every way possible. And Mike, you know, same question for you. Uh, where do you see LeBron's legacy if, you know, Cleveland comes away with this thing here? Yeah, I'm uh I'm right there with Andy as far as the LeBron support. I've been uh you know, I've I've written a lot of things in pro LeBron. I've I've always supported him and his place in the history of the league. Um you know, winning the title this year would I mean, just the fact that he could go from, you know, four straight years in the finals in Miami while Cleveland is an absolute bottom dweller, nowhere near the playoff picture. And just one guy, you know, can he can leave Miami, go to Cleveland in his first year back with a new team, new teammates, new coach, just take that team, despite, like, injuries, player turnover trades, take them to the, the finals from, you know, a team that hadn't even sniffed the playoffs in four years without him. And then the Heat, you know, drop out of the playoff picture, don't even make it. You know, I, I, that's just a testament. There's uh, there's no one else in the league, you know, currently that, that would be able to have that type of – you know, direct impact on a team. He has just, you know, he's done everything that's been asked of him, uh, you know, like anywhere he's needed to go, whether it be and if he needs to play more more as a facilitator in certain situations, if he needs to attack. I mean, he, as, as Andy said, he, he's in the complete package. He's, you know, he's, he, a lot of people, like, try to compare him to Jordan or whatever, but, uh, you know, he should be appreciated for what he is. You know, he has 
basically Magic Johnson's skill in Carl Malone's body. He can do anything on the court. And uh, if he were never to win another title in, in the NBA, he would still, you know, he'll be, as he should, go down as top, you know, one of the best players ever. And, um, you know, just a single title in Cleveland would cement him as, you know, absolutely one of the best players to ever play the game, I think. And, you know, I'll, I'll end the show today with, uh, you know, the the team on the other side, the Golden State Warriors, uh, some very familiar faces over there on that team. Um, you know, Andre Iguodala just had an incredible game one performance, both defensively and, you know, that, that steal on the, the fast break for the dunk was just, you know, throwback to 2004, Andre. Um, you know, what have you thought of both uh, Andre's defense on LeBron as well as, you know, sparking them offensively? This is a perfect team for, for Iguodala. I mean, he he had pressure on him here. He had to be, you know, the go-to guy, you know, for a while, and that just wasn't a role he was ever comfortable with. He's on a perfect team. He's got shooters. He's got scorers. He's got rebounders. He's got defenders. So he can kind of come in and just do his thing off the bench. I think he's done a very good job. You're never going to shut LeBron down. He knows that. He's smart enough to realize that. You just want to make it difficult. You want to be physical with him. You know, maybe make him take those shots a little bit more out of his comfort zone than he like. Uh, I think the whole year, I think Andre has had a terrific year. He's filled his role, just what the Warriors wanted. Um, but he's also not being, not having the pressure uh, to, to be that guy and have to play 40 minutes a night. He can come in, and, and I just think he's much more effective. I mean, if Golden State is able to come come out and win this series, and Andre gets his ring, you know, it'll be very well deserved. He's put a lot of effort in. He's always been a very good defender, uh, and I think he he got a little bit of luck uh, by coming to this team, but he's also made his luck as well. And I think that I honestly think I think the Philadelphia fans would actually be very happy for him. That might sound crazy, but he's earned it. He's had a very good year. And Mike, uh, you know, a couple other uh, former Sixers on this team uh, with uh, Maurice Spates, Justin Holiday, uh, you know, who hasn't played yet this series. But um, you know, did you get to see uh, Maurice Spates' interesting overtime dunk attempt? Yeah, yeah, that was uh that was pretty unfortunate, especially for a guy that's uh you know, played pretty well in uh in his role for the team, you know, throughout the year and the playoffs. It was uh you know, and it's gonna be looked at considering now that the game ended up going in overtime. I, you know, I already saw some jokes on, on Twitter last night, like, uh, I wonder what too bad the Warriors couldn't have found two extra points somewhere, you know, but uh <laughs> overall he he's done a really good job. He's you know, he's never been a shy shy to shoot the ball. Um, I think that's one of the one of the reasons uh, Doug Collins didn't necessarily like him that much. But um, you know he's come in and came in and provided the team with you know some instant offense at times. He, he can hit that uh, you know twenty foot twenty two uh, mid range uh, jumper that really that's perfect for Golden State. Helps you know Steph and Clay open up. They have, have to keep the defenders honest. So I mean kind of just like Iguodala, I think that's a uh, you know it's a good good fit for space out there in uh, Golden State. He doesn't have to play, you know, too many minutes or anything like that. So, uh, you know, and like uh, similarly, he would certainly be deserving of the ring and the role that, you know, he certainly helped the team. Yeah, the, the joke on press yeah. row was whenever whenever Spades had a double-double, 
we we would always joke he's only ten assists shy of a triple double. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you you think back to some of the decisions the organization made, like like Spates, <laughs> and what could have been there, you know, with Roy Hibbert picked right after DeAndre Jordan, not not too long after him. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I think that. He is a, a very good role player, as, as you saw in in Memphis, and he's kind of continued it here with the Warriors. So, you know, you got to be happy for a guy, you know, who was mid first round pick, who who's still in the league, um, you know, proving his worth here. So, um, you know, that that's it for today's show. Uh, thanks so much to to our first guest, Andy Jasner, coming on. It was a great time talking to you, and uh, you know, for. For myself and Mike Pasky Blomain, it it was a wonderful time here. Follow us on the app Stitcher, follow us on Twitter, and, you know, we'll we'll catch you next week with some more draft coverage. And, uh, you know, thanks uh, so much for listening. Man, it was real cool in school If we got good grades, let's trade up phase The parents would take us to a 76 game I got my game and there ain't no shame Big shots of Mo Cheeks and Moses Malone Julius Serva called Philly is home Bobby Jones, Daryl Dawkins, and Tony sinking threes Rocky Bobo will come from South Philly But if you want to make it on time to the show There's only one road that you really have to know So get to Fishtown without all that job I suggest that you drive on I-95 Wanna get downtown but feeling the fix Get on that road, they call 676, the most expensive, expensive piece of interstate They ever made a better same favor, but they got good game Getting on 76 Home, Bobby Jones, Daryl Dawkins, and Tony sinking threes. Rocky Bobo will come from South Philly. But if you want to make it on time to the show, there's only one road that you really have to know. So get to Fishtown without all that job. I suggest that you drive on I 95. Want to get downtown, but feeling the fix. Get on that road they call 676. The most expensive, expensive piece of interstate. They ever made a better same favors, but they got good game.